Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. All right, welcome everybody. I'm Stacey Whitney, and I'm joined today by senior consultant, Kate Homan. Hi, Kate. Great to have you back on the podcast. Hello, everyone. Great to be here. On today's episode, we are joined by Linda Cordisco-Steele. Thanks so much for joining us today, Linda. We're excited to, to, to talk with you about forensic interviewing and some of the things that are going on in the field. So for our listeners who may not know who you are, would you start by introducing yourself, please? Yes, I'm very happy to be here today and to speak with all of you. So um, my position at the moment is the Director of Forensic Interview Training and Services for the National Children's Advocacy Center. And I have been with the NCAC since 1999. So we have a long history around interviewing and training. Um, and my role is to oversee our training programs, um, help develop new programs. I supervise our forensic interviewers and um, all of our trainers, including myself, we still currently interview children. So we have an interviewing rotation and um, it just feels really important if you're going to be teaching someone about how to do something that you still are a practitioner in the field and we all love it anyway so that's why we want to do it too thanks so much and we agree with that at mcg 100 percent that doing and having you know stories and training like oh last week when i did an interview this happened and this is how i handled it it's really important to be able to continue to say those things so that's great love that well thank you again for joining us and we're so excited for you to share some of your insights uh, from your experience so i'm just curious linda after you know being in the field for um you know a long time really and for seeing so many interviewers come through, what what gets you out of bed in the morning? What keeps you going in this great work that we do? Well, I think forensic interviewing is such an important task. I just really feel like every child um, deserves to have a voice and to have that voice heard and to be able to have the opportunity to tell um, their story about their experiences in their own words. So it's an interesting thing to do anyway, but it's also very complex and there's so many continuing things to learn um, about how to be better at it, how to know more, have more knowledge, what's the current research telling us, and then how to actually um, make the conversation with the child, um, be more comfortable for the child and allow them to have more opportunity to be able to talk to us. Um, so currently right now, the thing that um, I'm really passionate about and we're working on here at NCAC with our forensic interview training is how to, I think all of the training schools around forensic interviewing do a great job of getting new interviewers launched with information and opportunities to practice and structure and, and 
just does a great job of, of getting people started. And we know that we have these advanced trainings on down the road that talk about special populations of child victims or special kinds of cases. But what I think the field has been missing for a long time is what do we provide new interviewers post that initial training that helps them really come to have some understanding and some ability um, to really put into practice the things that they've just learned. So that's what we're working on now. And I, I think that's so important. And I love that that's being recognized because I think, you know, one of the things we say in training a lot is we just build your brains with so much stuff. Like there's a lot of information in those initial and even the advanced trainings that people get. And then they have to take that and apply it to Monday morning when they get to work and maybe even before Monday morning, depending on what their role is. So I love that we're sort of thinking about how can we take care of this middle ground? Because we know that burnout among interviewers is a huge issue. So we, you know, people get trained and then sometimes we lose them kind of along the way. So I love what you're talking about with applying it, but then also thinking about how can that turn into maybe some longevity even for interviewers? Is that something that you're seeing too? Yes, I think we're really interested in the longevity and we're interested in the resiliency. And, and these can be hard cases. We hear some really hard stories, but I think when one feels um, um, comfortable and knowledgeable, well-prepared in your skill set, that that serves to, to, that supports you in some way. Um, so I think that is important. Yeah, so it's all, it all feels tied together. Like we want to feel confident in our skills, be able to feel like we are making a difference. You know, all the things you said at the beginning about we want children to have this opportunity to tell their story. And as we look at vulnerable populations, you know, adults with disabilities and mental health disorders, some of the populations that we're seeing are also being served by forensic interviewing. It's like, how can we make sure professionals, experienced professionals really stay in this work um, to benefit those populations as well? So I love that you're doing it. What are some of the things that you're doing to, to help bridge that gap between just starting out and staying in the field for a long time? Well, part of my role at NCAC for quite a while has been uh, supervision of forensic interviewers. So when our new interviewers um, go through a training, um, they we provide a lot of support. We provide um, a lot of opportunities to role play, um, actually using the skills they just learned without the consequences being or the risk being quite so high. Um, chances to get feedback, chances, you're really asking people to, we all have long-standing habits about how we have conversations with children, and we're asking people to not get rid of those habits, to really put those habits to the side and develop new habits about how to have this conversation, how to gain information from children in a manner that allows children to speak freely and to um, understand that this is their story and we want them to do the talking about it. Now we can tell interviewers that's important to do. They can really embrace that. They, it's not that they don't get it, but they still don't know how to do it. 
And if we think about other complex skills we've learned in our past, you know, driving a car, um, learning to play a sport, learning to play a musical instrument, it wasn't just go to this class and then go out and be a violinist or go out and be a star quarterback or something like that. There's a long training and practice and coaching and all of the things that go into helping um, that person, whatever skill it is, and in this case, it's forensic interviewing, learn to really do the craft that they're trying to learn to do. Um, now, if you have a supervisor when you go back home and that supervisor is kind of steeped in providing that kind of support and oversight, then those interviewers are in good shape. But in actuality, we know for many interviewers, that's not the case. And it's not anybody's fault. No one set out for it to be that way. Um, but there's not resources. There's not the level of expertise. Stacy, you mentioned the turnover. People sometimes are sent to become an interviewer because the last one left. So they go back home. They're the interviewer now. And um, who supports, guides, helps, instructs, corrects, um, validates um, what they're doing when they're in the interview room? So you said so many things, Linda, that my brain is thinking about right now. I love, I love the comparison that you made to driving or learning any new skill, really. Like that doesn't happen overnight. And a lot of it is so situational. That's the word that keeps coming up in my mm -hmm. head. Like you don't become a good driver by reading a manual. You become a good driver by being in situations and needing to figure it out. And I think arguably the same could be said for playing an instrument, playing a sport, like you, you get in those situations and you figure it out or use the skills that you've learned. And until you have those experiences, you can't fully apply or be, you know, the best interviewer, the best football player, the best driver that you can be. And so I love that idea of, you know, we become an expert after having so many hours of something, but every day is still new and every person in front of you is still new. It's going to have unique challenges within those interviews. And so I really, I really like that, you know, idea of we don't just learn to do something once we have to learn to do it over and over again mm -hmm. and be willing to be flexible and navigate those moments when things are, you know, different or new or challenging, or hopefully go to a new training to learn some of those advanced skills and, and reflect on how we could be better at our, at our art. So I don't really have a question. I just thought that was really profound. I had a lot of <laughs> light bulbs about what you said, Linda. So thank you for sharing that. Kate, do you have a question? Well, I, I loved the comparison to like learning a new instrument or learning to read music and play music because I had mentors in the forensic interviewing field for a very long time who compared the skill to just that, where when we first came into the interviewing field, it was very much, all right, I'm staring at this sheet music. I'm still trying to figure everything out while I plunk out each and every note in almost like a concrete and literal way, very slow, very methodical. And I'm like, all right, first I do this, then I do this, then I do this, then I do this. But then as you grow and change in your skills, you're able to add in your art to that and get to that point of being advanced. But there are all these middle pieces from going from, all right, first I do this, then I do this, then I do this, to then getting to that point where you feel confident enough to bring yourself into the interview, to be a critical thinker within the interview space. 
Um, and I think it's really important that we look at it like this and then we think about how can we provide support to new interviewers, whether we're in well-resourced places or even helping mm -hmm. those that aren't in well-resourced places feel like they have that support to kind of get from point A to point B, even though it's not a linear path at all to developing those skills. So Linda, I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for those of us who are supervising interviewers coming out of basic training on how we can best support new interviewers through this journey? Yeah, I do have some ideas. I, I think that, and in, in, again, I, I absolutely recognize and respect that we all work within the boundaries of the resources we have and the particular setup that we have. But I think I, I do, we hear sometimes the recommendation to you just got to get them in the room and get them learning. Um, and there is a place and a time for that. But I think we would benefit from taking some time to tease out what are some of the kind of chunk out, what are the unique skill sets that make this kind of conversation different? So how to how to do each of the steps in the protocol or the big one, I think, is really learning how to ask those questions that have demonstrate some understanding, some grasp of recall based questions, recognition based questions, how to pose that, how to phrase that how to lay down that kind of neural pathway that says when the child says X, I listen to what they say and I give them this open question, like tell me about the thing they just said, as opposed to going some other directions. So I think some a discrete practice, um, one phrase I've heard, it's not just practice, it's deep practice. It's practice where you're paying attention. You have space to think about what you're doing. And it's greatly supported by being able to get some supportive, clear, objective feedback. Like, don't phrase it this way, phrase it this way. Open that question up, you know, follow up with a reflection. I think that would, if, if we could build in some some tools, some practices of doing that before they're in the complicated realm of you got a case, you got a kid that's doing whatever that kid is doing in the interview room. Um, I think it would go a long way. Um, and we just haven't provided guidance about how to do that. But I think it's important. Yeah, I like what you're saying about the brain pathways, because I think that's one of the things as as I'm reflecting on my own journey, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about how I needed to understand memory retrieval yes. and how trauma affects memory retrieval and what that looks like when we're formulating those questions. And I think as we go from new interviewers to experienced interviewers, that's part of the journey and the individualization of that journey is so interesting to me too, because maybe some people got that earlier than I did. Maybe they got <laughs> it later than I did. Like there's no prescription that says first learn this, then learn this. At least I don't think so because of our own life experience and our lens, that's going to come to us maybe a little bit 
differently. So, you know, we have that individualization of our own journey while trying to follow our semi-structured processes and yes. everybody being consistently and having that fidelity to the models that we learn, um, I think is really interesting. I'm curious when you were talking about supervision, which is of course very important, but lacking mm -hmm. in some areas, I'm curious how you feel like peer review fits in to some of this too. Well, I think peer review has a place, but I think it's the, the problem with how we're doing peer review now is particularly in the beginning, it's not enough and it's not consistent. So initially, when I think about supervision, and I did come to forensic interviewing from having been a, a clinician and a supervising clinician, so the supervision is kind of wired into me, I think about how um, that relationship with that supervisor can can be a very trusting relationship, and and it's it's you, they get to know each other. You know that person that you're giving feedback to, what their strengths are, what they need to work on, and it allows it to be more targeted. Now, peer review has an important role too, but I don't think it can replace that particular step. And I think for new interviewers, one of my worries is they either don't get any really targeted constructive feedback because people, it's risky to give feedback and mm -hmm. you don't yes. know how that person's going to react or they get so much feedback that it's too much for them to really take in and process and make use of at the place where they are. As people move along, they should be more prepared to be able to do that. Like, I agree with that. I think that's important. I don't know that I agree with that. Um, that's interesting, but I'll have to think about that. But that newer interviewer just doesn't have that yet. Um, and so I'm not sure it serves the, the particular maybe developmental need of that person um that new interviewer um if people are uncomfortable with the term supervision they might think about it more in terms of coaching mm -hmm. like coaching somebody about a new skill um maybe mentoring um you don't have to just stick with the supervision um terminology well, supervision often includes good mentorship and, and coaching. Yes. So those can be part of it for sure. But I'm glad that we teased that out a little bit because like you're saying, it can't be replaced. It's an it's another thing, peer review. Mm -hmm. It's another thing. And it's a valuable thing that we need to participate in. Yes. But it doesn't replace, because I like what you said too. It's like, well, if you're getting peer review feedback and you don't know how to sort that out, you <laughs> may be getting feedback that's not going to be as constructive or useful for you as you're growing and developing. So it's almost like this multi-pronged approach. Yes. And so peer review comes in, but it's not going to replace the supervision and mentorship you're talking about and may even enhance it a little bit. So mm -hmm. if we go to peer review and then we come back to our supervisor and say, hey, so they said this, you know, how do I manage? Mm -hmm. That could even be another really great way to generate some of those conversations, I think. So yeah, it's it's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that I think is maybe missing that we could do better. It is. And interestingly enough, following the presentation in um, San Francisco, um, San Francisco, San Diego, where 
um, I was talking about this, I did get some follow-up emails like, so is peer review out now? And we can, and, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's not what I intended to say. <laughs> and I was really glad that someone asked that question because I'm not saying no peer review. I'm just saying it's different. And I, I think the other challenge is people may not get to participate in a peer review of their work until months down the road. And they can form a lot of good habits or bad habits before they get to that place. And peer reviews run differently all over the country. Sometimes people do it only in-house with mm -hmm. other reviewers. Sometimes, you know, there's, I know there's regional offerings of it. Um, you know, we offer a peer review through our website. So there's all sorts of different ways that you can access peer review. Um, and with the virtual platform opening up so much in the last couple of years, yes. I think it's really expanded that opportunity. And we've had people tell us like, I'm the only one that's mm -hmm. here. So I don't get regular feedback. So they're going to take mm -hmm. advantage of those opportunities. But if they aren't somebody that knows about those opportunities or seeks them out, if they're just alone on an island, you know, I think that's what you're saying. Like those skills aren't going to have the opportunity to really grow and blossom the way that we would hope they would for someone to reach their skill level and also have that longevity in the field. So lots yeah. to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. My brain's just going like I'm like, for thinking about my own journey because it's been, um, mm -hmm. you know, I won't say when I started, but it's been a long time. So it's uh, it's fun to think about going all the way back to the beginning and and how that journey and the people who've inspired me and how that process has gone and wondering if along the way I'd had some of the stuff you're talking about, how that journey might have been affected for me. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I, I heard you mention earlier, uh, Linda, and I think this is a really interesting concept because oftentimes I think, you know, post basic training, we're so focused on skill building and development. Like how do you ask questions? Are you asking open-ended questions? Are you following the model? Are you doing all these things? Which is really, really important. But the other thing that I've heard you mentioned was fostering that sort of sense of resiliency in interviewers, mm -hmm. which kind of goes beyond that skill development. So I'm wondering if you would talk about that piece a little bit more. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk a lot now, kind of, uh, there's a lot of focus on secondary traumatic stress and and helping people deal with or, you know, process, come to terms with the kind of things that they're listening to. And that's certainly part of resiliency. But I think, and I think there are things we can build in about how to help interviewers manage that component um, earlier on in their career. But I'm thinking that they're, we're not the only profession where people are doing hard work that put mm -hmm. them in contact with, you know, sad things in life, you know, things happening to people that we wish wouldn't happen to them. Um, and I think that that sense that, yes, I can't change the whole history for this child or make their life magically better. But for my moment in time, when I'm interacting with this child, I can provide something to them that is likely going to be of benefit. And particularly if that information the child provides 
then equips, you know, some of our partners, our child protection or law enforcement or gets parents on board with understanding their child and protecting their child better, um, then I think we we feel a kind of, we feel good about what we're doing. You know, we feel like it's important. We feel like we do it well. And I, I think my hunch is that some of the people that don't stay in the field are because they have the sense that this is not going well but I don't know what I need to do better. And I feel a lot of burden and responsibility. And this is just too much, you know? I, 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 I don't know what to do with, um, with dealing with, uh, because not all cases go well and not all kids talk to us. Um, but if I'm confident in my skill set, I can still feel sad that child didn't talk, but I feel like I gave them a, a really good opportunity. I created that environment. I was supportive. I adapted it to them. Um, and I think that contributes largely to resiliency, feeling good about your profession and what you do on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can remember back to my basic training, and I know many of the basic models say the same thing. Disclosure is not the goal, but then you go into that first forensic interview or first few forensic interviews, and then all of a sudden you have a kid in front of you who isn't ready, and yes. you take that burden onto yourself. And as you know, a new interviewer, especially, it can feel like you know the investigation not being able to go somewhere is all on you as the mouthpiece of the investigation. So I think it's a really interesting idea to kind of look beyond those question asking skills and definitely supporting those, but also looking at how can we support interviewers in this process so that they can feel like I did everything that I could in this situation to support this child or even adult um, in this forensic interview. And I'm doing my job to the best of my ability. And today was not the day. And yeah, I was not, not the day. Whatever that might be. Yeah. And I do think it's hard on, it's hard, you know, all mm -hmm. of us wish we could, particularly if we think I can just see, I know this kid has something to say, but if they're not ready to say it, they're not going to say it. Um, but that really hits you hard, you know, till you learn how to recognize this same skill set that worked really well with a lot of other kids it was something in the child or something in the dynamics of the family that caused that to happen. So that's a piece of supervision, peer support, um, helping us come to terms with all of that. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. <laughs> Definitely. And I think for me, that's one of the things that I, that I often say, people are like, oh, like, you know, how do you listen to that? You know, all day long, you're talking about the hard stuff that we have to hear. And it's true. We do have to hear hard stuff, but what my light always is it's the kids who aren't ready. They're the ones I worry about. Like yes. if I provided that platform for a kid to tell me what's happened to them, that's a good day at work. What it's the ones that aren't ready that, you know, that's, you know, that's what sort of keeps me up at night, so to speak. And mm -hmm. that I, that I think I struggle with. Um, and I'm sure other people do too. And in other professions in our MDT as well, you know, it's not just 
the interviewer, it's the, the folks we work with, like you mentioned, the CPS and law enforcement, prosecutors, medical, everybody, advocates, you know, mental health, I'm trying to make sure I don't lose it or forget anybody, but anybody on the MDT that, you know, knows what's going on and then something doesn't go well in the investigation. And I think oftentimes that feels like it comes back to the interview. And that made me think I was doing um, some expert review assisting a couple of interviewers and they were like well what about the prosecutor what about the investigator you know they were doing all these things trying to sort of almost take care of everybody in the investigation and I was like at some point you know you've got to let them do their part and we've got to do our part like you can't possibly take on everybody's role here and they were like wow that's so reassuring because they felt like the weight of the whole MDT was on them and I was like no they've still got their jobs to go out and do that's important that we all work together and it's not just about the interviewer even just about the law enforcement investigation child protective that that's why we are a team because it has to be all of us coming together and I think that for for me I was fortunate to you know be in a in a team where I felt that you know where it was it didn't feel like it was all on me or all on them it was let's all do our part to do this together so in addition to supervision I think you know MDTs and their relationships can really affect that process too yeah well a couple of things I thought first in reaction to what um, Kate said I think there is also Another skill set is for that kid that's just not ready. It's also developing some comfort, some sense of when to let it go, you know, so that you're not like pounding on the kid, trying to get them to disclose um, and making it where the kid never wants to talk to you, even if they decided they got ready to tell. So I think that's part of the skill set um, and that can come with supervision is not the only way you can get it but it's certainly developing that sense of professional identity what's my role what is my profession and this kind of goes to what Stacy was saying um one of our mottos I guess you'd say for our team in fact some of us got t-shirts that say on the t-shirt stay in your lane um and <laughs> it serves a couple of purposes one yeah. is I don't need to be telling the others how they should do their job and they don't need to be telling me how to do my job. Um, but it also speaks to there's a lot of lanes and in forensic interviewing. It's just one of those lanes. Um, I feel like I need that T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. I think we got it. I don't know, off of Etsy or something. There, yes. Yeah, it was it was a, a cute little way we kind of tried to remind partners about everyone's <laughs> lane yeah well yeah. remind ourselves too like you said like yes. I need to stay in my lane just like mm -hmm. everybody else needs to stay in their lane yeah. and that doesn't mean that other you know parts of the team don't affect us or you know we have mm -hmm. to be there and support each other and of course in the interview I have to be thinking about what are the elements that you know make a crime in the jurisdiction I'm in and making sure that I'm doing things that are legally defensible because I yes. got to defend it and the prosecutors got to defend it of course we have to understand those things but we can't let ourselves get so wrapped up in feeling like the weight of it all falls to us mm -hmm. because those other folks are really good at their job too and they're going to go out and do it and we have to trust that that's going to yes. happen and I think that that's, you know, stay in your lane is a great, great way to put it. We're all driving on the same highway here, but let's that's just right. all stay in our lanes yes. to get to the, get to the finish line, so to speak. So mm -hmm. that's great. I love that. I want that shirt. <laughs> <laughs>
also another kind of element that I think um, we haven't done well with that I would like to in include some attention on um, for forensic interviewing is critical thinking through the interview process. So, and I know you guys do a lot of work with interviewing kids and probably adults too with disabilities, but mm -hmm. whatever the information is about the child or about the case, um, helping interviewers um, learn how to look at what you have to work with, kind of predict some of the adaptations you're going to have to make, uh, potentially going into this interview with this child. But then also throughout that interview process, that decision-making process that goes on, do I back off? Do I go forward? Do I ask something more direct? Do I wait? Do I, um, and I, I think interviewers sort of learn that over time, but I think there are ways that more experienced interviewers um, could do a better job of articulating that thought process. It sometimes I think for when new interviewers watch really experienced interviewers, it looks like magic and like, how did you know how to do that? And it wasn't magic at all. It was a very quick thought process, but it was a decision to go this way rather than that way and, you know, deal with this first and come back to that. Um, so I think as well as the good questions and following our protocol, um, that's another area that would be helpful for us to do a better job of helping interviewers learn to do that. Well, and I think sometimes one of the things I found in some of our trainings, Linda, is that people almost need permission yes. to critically think. Yes. They need to be told by somebody anybody sometimes it's me sometimes it's Kate I'm sure you do this too they need to be told hey it's okay if you try this thing as long as you can defend it as long as it fits within the parameters of being trauma-informed and victim-centered it's not leading in suggestive developmentally appropriate you know there's a lot of things we have to keep track of but giving people permission to use their brains a little bit because in a, any training we can't possibly predict anything that could happen in an interview so giving people permission to use their experience, skills, training, humanness, whatever the thing is that they're afraid to use. I think that that, that comes up a lot. And I think that comes with time and confidence, but if people have that permission from somebody that they look up to early on, I think that that could make a difference too. Yeah, I think it can. I think we get so focused in the beginning to teach them how to do it according to the protocol. And I'm scared in that first training to start talking about ways to deviate from the protocol and the mm -hmm. questions because we're still trying to get them to, you know, buy into this approach really works best with many kids. Um, but yeah, they've got to, they've got to, they've got to learn somewhere along the way. Mm -hmm when to move away from the perfect practice. Right. Well, and I think a lot semi-structured, right? Semi-structured, but sometimes when you learn it, it feels very structured. So yes. learning to, to get the outliers from that. Sorry, Kate, I interrupted your thought. It's okay. 
I think a lot through that like supervision or mentorship sort of uh, process, like you mentioned, is a perfect time to help people develop those skills because as I'm supervising new interviewers in New Orleans or in other jurisdictions in Louisiana, I'm always thinking, I don't want to make them interview how I interview. I want them to interview how they do. Um, and how can I help them get to that point where they're making those quick decisions in, in their heads saying, oh, well, this kid did this. So therefore, I think I need to do this in this moment. And they go for it mm -hmm. and they feel confident to go for that, um, regardless of, of what that might be, whether it's just, you know, something like making sure we're asking open-ended questions or, um, you know, wording a question in a particular way or thinking, you know, I have this kid with a disability in front of me. I think it makes sense for me to, you know, use some sort of interview aid or tool or mm -hmm. whatever it might be in that moment. Um, you know, supervisors play an incredible role in helping to develop those critical thinking skills. Because if I just sat there the entire time during supervision, and when I supervise interviewers, I'm with them throughout the actual interview process, I could say, here's exactly how you should say this question and do the entire interview for them through the earpiece. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to do that. I want them to interview the way that they would so that they can start to develop those skills. Um, and, you know, having activities like brainstorming questions outside of the interview room for places where they felt stuck in the interview so that they feel like, okay, I've got options here so that they can, you know, use those skills to think through, all right, if I'm faced with a situation ever again, here's how I'm going to try to tackle it. Um, and they feel more confident on their own. So I think that's huge. And I've always felt so strongly that critical thinking is such a forensic interviewer skill that none of us give ourselves credit for because we just make these decisions in the moment based on a lot of things, but we make them so quickly that I think we, we mix, miss it sometimes where it's like, no, we're doing a heck of a lot within that interview room um, to make sure that we are centering this environment around the person that's in front of us. And we need to acknowledge that we have all of these skills and capabilities in that moment. Um, it's one of my things. I'm always like, you always did so many things. Well, I need you to find at least one thing. And I don't want to hear the child did great. Yes, they did. However, you did great too. find one reason why. Yeah. Lots of things to think about with Lots. Lots of things to think about. How how do we fill that middle ground that you talk about? You know, the right after to the advanced. There's there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on really in between. Um, so what uh, what if any resources are you aware of, Linda, that people could maybe tap into if this is something if they're in that middle ground and looking for some support? What resources are out there right now for folks? Well, there probably are resources that are out there that I'm not aware of. So I'm going to be focusing on the ones that I am aware of. And it's um, part of what we have. In, in, and again, it's helping the field kind of understand what we're doing, where we're going with this. But we've really moved away um, from just saying advanced training that had a, a lot of, uh, at least our style, but I think a lot of other places and advanced training might have different components of when you interview a reluctant kid and when you interview a traffic kid and when you interview a preschooler. And so we're, we, our concern with that is you're sort of skating over the surface for any of those things. You might have some um, 
helpful or information or additional knowledge, maybe some suggestions of strategies, but we're developing a, a, a whole host of more targeted training about, um, you know, asking good questions, uh, providing social support, um, interviewing a high narrative child, how to do critical thinking through the interview. Um, some of those are three-day things. Some of those are going to be one-day virtual. I, I mean, we're wanting to try to get this information out in a lot of different formats so that people will be able to access it. Um, and I, the other area I'm really interested in is this idea of developing um, forensic interview supervisors, having people, sounds like, Kate, that's a role that you have. And mm -hmm. if you will give someone that role and let them really play that role with other interviewers, um, that's going to be much more effective than just sort of the hit and miss thing that one interviewer might do with another. So that's another thing we're working on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm in a very unique place in that Louisiana actually has a supervision requirement written into the law. Um, so we are very focused on the process of effective, um, you know, skill building development and do it way beyond the legal requirement because it's kind of the bare minimum. But I, I want for everyone to have this, um, you know, in places where there are forensic interviewers and aren't, because I think it's just such an important part of the process for all of the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah. And if it's not within a, you know, how can we do that in a variety of ways? Maybe mm -hmm. you're talking about Louisiana, I, maybe another state. Um, I know in Utah, there is um, a woman that works, her name Heather Stewart, and she is in that sort of supervision or mentoring coaching role for the state so mm -hmm. she provides that kind of service to other interview I mean other child advocacy well I guess their child children's justice centers in Utah um, that don't have that ability to build it into their um, their structure I know Pennsylvania has tried to come up with a, they've developed a kind of a mentoring program across CACs. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a variety of ways if we embrace this as important that we can, um, both at the national level, but at the local and state regional level, uh, come up with different ways to do this. And that's right in line with how we've always done things like forensic mm -hmm. interviewing and child advocacy centers, really dependent on the jurisdiction, the location, the community, all of those things, those pieces need to fit together. So I, I love that you're saying there's not just one way to do it, because that's not how we've ever said anything in this field. So it's just a matter of getting it started, making it happen. And I think that that's, that's really great. Um, and it sounds like it's taken off across the country. So I'm glad to hear there's already some models that are happening and uh, I'm excited for what's next and what could come of it. It sounds like there's a lot of good stuff happening. Me too. Well, and any final words of wisdom or anything that you wanna leave us with as we get ready to wrap up? Um, not, 
Nothing in particular. I I will leave that I just finished reading. I'm not really plugging this book. It's not about forensic interviewing, um, but it was a book about talent. It's called The Talent Code. Uh, but sort of the premise of it is that um, greatness isn't born, it's it's grown. So, I, you know, it's good interviewing. You don't just like, oh, that person's got it. They're automatically a good interviewer. It's something that it, we grow into and something that we can support others growing into. So. Well, I think that was perfect. Yeah, it's my new motto. It's my new motto. You can grow it. (laughs) You know, you don't have to be born with it. You can grow it. Great. Wonderful. Well, Linda, thank you again for some taking some time to hang out with us and talk about our favorite topic. We appreciate you and all the great work you're doing. Well, it was fun. You guys made it fun. So thank you for doing this. Thanks so much. For more information about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.